Well, welcome to our first Sunday evening service, our summer in the Psalms, and I really want to just get straight to it. So if you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 51, and I'm going to read the first six verses of Psalm 51. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. I pray and ask that you would bring us to the true interpretation of your scriptures. Help us to understand all that you would have us from this particular psalm and just the psalms as a whole, and that we may be sanctified, we would be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ for your glory and for our good, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me begin by just explaining very briefly why, when the first opportunity comes to me, why I would choose Psalm 51 and really all that's going on with the sin of David in this particular psalm. Well, first, I just, I really enjoy it. I find it comforting. I find it very helpful. I find it challenging, of course. I find it instructive. I find it pride-crushing, which is something that I constantly need in the Christian life. I see many things in it. I see how to approach God in prayer. It shows me a right view of my sin before him in the Christian life. I learn about God's mercy. Who's to blame for my sin? How to be cleansed? Should I feel guilt because of my sin? Should I be discouraged? Shows me the lies and the deceit of sin in the Christian life, which really causes me to be on guard. When I look at the sin of David and all that he did, it really causes me in the Christian life to really be on guard. And what I really gain the most from in this particular psalm is when I know who wrote it. The story of David and Bathsheba is a well-known one, and it's a tragic one, there's no doubt about it. It's sad, it's upsetting. Everyone knows this about David. If, if anything, everybody in the world knows about King David, they know about David and Bathsheba. But it is also, I would say, not just a tragic story, but it's a story of forgiveness, a story of honesty and of humility. I love seeing, reading, and hearing the stories of forgiveness in Scripture. Esau forgives his brother Jacob for stealing his birthright. Joseph forgives his brothers for really wanting him to die there in that pit. Rahab, the prostitute, is forgiven. The prodigal son forgiven by the father. Jesus forgives the woman caught in adultery the thief on the cross. God spares Israel, forgiving them over and over and over again. 
God forgives Nineveh. The Apostle Paul is forgiven for even persecuting Christ's bride. I love seeing when sinners take ownership of their sins or their wrongdoing, whether big or even small. Even just in those examples that I give you in Scripture, we have murder, prostitution, adultery, thievery, deceit, persecuting God's very own church. And even when we come to faith in Christ, passing from death into life, there was a time where we confessed our sins to the Lord and we were forgiven. But even in the Christian life, I love hearing when people own their own sin and they confess it to God and they confess it even to others. Even in my own life, in my own marriage, and in my own family, the importance of what I do in the walls of my own home. And my wife would agree with this, that the most intimate, loving, and unifying times that I have had with my wife is when I have confessed my sins to her and she has forgiven me. I have owned the things that I've done towards her or the things that I haven't done, sins of commission or sins of omission, and I own them. I don't blame shift. I don't point the finger or I start explaining all those extenuating circumstances that really caused those reactions or caused me to really sin against her or even my own children. Though I'm really tempted to give all the justifications in my mind as to why I've sinned, instead of doing that, I own those things. You see, when I do things, when I sin against my wife, my children, or others, it's really, in my mind, just a mistake. It's not that bad. We make light of our sin. There's no doubt about it. But when you sin against me, that's for sure sin, right? Having those kinds of attitudes or responses never helps in a relationship. The only response to our sin that glorifies God and softens the hearts of those that we have offended is when we own our sin. We own it. And here's a little bit of a Father's Day challenge. As fathers, as the priests of our own home, the ones we lead in our home, the head of our own households, As fathers, we should be leading in confession, leading our family as an example of owning our wrongdoing and our sins. We have a lot of fathers with a lot of young children. Our children should see this modeled by us first. I want my little children to see that when daddy has a sinful response, talks in a demeaning way, has attitude or anger either towards my wife or even towards them, that they see daddy own his sin and wrongdoing. They have to see it modeled to really know. 
It's just another opportunity in our own walls of our own home for the gospel to be centered. They need a picture of the gospel all the time, and they need to see it from daddy when he confesses his sins and he owns it. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. We don't have that picture up there, but you've seen summer in the Psalms for the last two weeks, and you look and you see the nice blue skies, you see the nice trees and the sun, and it looks like someone is just bathing in the sun and having a nice drink or two. And here comes Nick talking about adultery and murder and challenging fathers on their only day off in this entire year. Well, it's not my intention to be harsh or critical, but I actually think that it's very helpful for us to even start out our summer in the Psalms in Psalm 51. When we think of confession and ownership, it should be seen as a really a liberating experience. When I own my sin and I talk about it with my wife and I apologize and I ask for her forgiveness, I feel a weight off my shoulders that I just can't describe rather than harboring it or taking it in. This should be a liberating experience that causes humility and honesty, not just in our marriages, in our family life, but also in the church. Now, we've been reading the Psalms Sunday mornings for almost a year now, if not about a year. And if you've been in the daily Bible reading plan, you yourself have just been finishing Psalms, I believe. And what I love about the Psalms, and you have maybe already noticed it so far, is you notice the Psalm writer's complete honesty, right? The different Psalms writers are not seeing the world that they live in or that we live in through rose-colored glasses. And you see this type of honesty in the Psalms of lament. We had a little bit of that in Psalm 40 this morning. Those Psalms of lament are full of sorrow, pain, distress, anger, feelings of discouragement, feelings of abandonment, both among the community of Israel and the author of the particular psalm. They're all real human struggles, and you can always hear the anguish of heart experienced by those who are trying to live out their faith in a sin-cursed world. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the face of the earth. Everyone is lying to their own neighbor. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry, but you do not answer. All night long, Lord, I flood my bed with tears. Lord, consider all my afflictions. Consider all of my troubles, Lord. Please forgive me. Those are all songs of lament. And they're all psalms which show honesty from that particular author. We feel pain. We feel sorrow. We're plagued by the effects of sin in the world and even the effects of sin of our own doing. And one of the main reasons that the book of Psalms as a whole has been so helpful among the community of believers and is so loved is that it's so empathetic and realistic. 
not only in the heights of joy, but in the depths of distress. We can really relate with the psalm writers and all that they're going through and how they respond to life's trouble. I think in the Christian life, we are desperate for sympathy and for honesty in our own community, in our own local churches. And I think Psalms really cultivates that in the Christian life. The Psalms help us to feel okay. They help us to feel comfortable to express honest thoughts and heartache among God's people. It was just two weeks ago that Junior came and preached on God's faithfulness. And if you remember in the grace group questions, he and I had two questions at the bottom for application. And the first one was, how in your life have you seen God be faithful? No problem there. When I ask that question, everybody can start answering on how God has been faithful. Second question was what? Do you remember? At times in your life, when have you not seen or when have you questioned or doubted the faithfulness of God? It's a little bit different, more difficult of a question. And for me, it was a real test. It was a real test for me to see how we're doing as a church and as a leader to see if we're creating what Ray Ortland in his book calls a gospel culture. Are we creating a culture where sinners have a comfortability to be honest with their sin? That you can answer in that kind of grace group question of how you have maybe doubted God's faithfulness in areas of your life at times of your life, and you feel like you're not going to get a raised eyebrow or feel judged because you've maybe doubted God's faithfulness at times or you're not going to get scolded or receive some kind of legalistic response from somebody. Or maybe if you are honest about questioning God's faithfulness at times of your life because of deep distress or trying times, that someone's not going to just automatically question the validity of your salvation. Now, I'm not saying that when someone comes to us, that we meet the difficulties of their life or their confession of sin with any kind of indifference or we don't give any kind of counsel or any kind of instruction. That is absolutely necessary and helpful to those struggling with sin. But creating a gospel culture is when someone, a brother or a sister in Christ comes to us and they come to us because they know that we're going to handle their honesty about the difficulties of sin in their life with care, with sympathy, with love and understanding that we too struggle with the same exact things. In his book on the gospel, Ray Orland said this, he said, the family of God is where people should find lots of gospel, lots of safety, and lots of time. In other words, the people in our churches need one multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. And two, the safety of non-accusing sympathy so that they can admit their problems honestly. And three, 
enough time to rethink their lives at a deep level because people are complex and change is not easy. In the same section, he says this, the goal is not to make the church safe for sin, it's to make it safe for confession and repentance. When the gospel of Christ's grace, listen, defines both the doctrine and the culture of a church, its members can safely confess and forsake sin. Even extreme sinners can find themselves wonderfully forgiven and freed. Did you hear that? I've read that last part maybe 10 times in the last two or three days. I love it. And I hope that we as a church are creating a gospel culture in our own local church. But even that last statement, even extreme sinners can find themselves wonderfully forgiven and freed. I think it's what we see in Psalm 51. We would consider the sin of David to be an extreme sin. Extreme sins, plural, and all that he did surrounding this time that he had wrote this psalm. It's one of honesty, it's one of ownership, and it's also one of forgiveness. Now this psalm, Psalm 51, was first for Israel to read and to see that even the greatest king is a sinner in need of grace and is not beyond the temptation of such horrific sins. And even King David could be honest about his sin. Now, all I'm going to do in our short amount of time is I'm going to simply set the stage as to what's going on in David's life for him to say this psalm. We're not even going to even be able to get into Psalm 51. And if by God's grace or by... um, If I'm able to really get back up here in the summer of Psalms, I'll get into a few of the verses, but I'm not even going to get into the verses. I'm going to set the stage as far as all that David experienced, and then we'll just barely, barely touch on that psalm before we close. Now, Psalm 51, we know, is a psalm of David. I just read that. A bit of information is real hopeful. David wrote up to 73 out of 150 of the Psalms that we have before us, all inspired by God. God himself, this is what I love, God himself did not choose to hide or conceal in any way the greatest sins of the greatest king that ever lived in Israel. And it's a king that God himself chose knowing what that king would eventually do. I mean, just chew on that for a second. He knew fully well what David would do one day. Have you ever felt that in the Christian life? Lord, I know you saved me. I know that you gave me a new heart. You have transformed me by your grace, knowing that I would still continue in sin You knew that I would still do even horrific sins before you. But you still weren't ashamed to call me your son or call me your daughter. 
Now, I think that we can only begin to understand what the Lord would have us learn from this psalm when we fully understand who wrote it and all that caused David to say these inspired words for generations and generations to consider. Now, not all of the psalms have what we call a superscription. Not all the psalms that we have, we know who wrote it and what was going on with that particular psalm. But this is one of those psalms that we know exactly who wrote it and exactly what was going on when he wrote that psalm. So I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11 records for us this time that Nathan in that superscription came to David at the time that David sinned greatly against the Lord. Now in 2 Samuel 11, I'm just going to barely set the context. We're going to read a little bit of this chapter. I'm going to explain all that's going on, and we're going to end with just a few comments in Psalm 51, and then we'll close. In Psalm, excuse me, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're jumping into the middle of David's life. Now we know that David is chosen by God to replace Saul. God chose David and calls him a man after God's own heart. What a title. He's born into the line of Judah. All the glorious promises of the Davidic covenant coming through David. The Messiah would come through the line of David. David was Israel's arguably greatest king. He ruled over Israel in righteousness, justice, and in fear of the Lord. He regularly inquired of the Lord for guidance. The Lord gave David victory everywhere that he went. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord, especially at that time when David brought the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. David continually caused the people to worship Yahweh in covenant keeping. And all that's prescribed there as a king should do in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He was a blessed man and he was a blessed king. Now, all that he had accomplished and had done in the name of the Lord before this sin, this particular sin, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So if you're there, look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So far, nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with what's going on. It is definitely an opportunity for David and is definitely going to be a very strong temptation for David with what he is now witnessing. David could have prayed and he could have asked the Lord to give him a type of self-control that he could have possessed and obtained and he could have stayed away from that which is forbidden. He had an opportunity he could have responded the way maybe Joseph did with Potiphar's wife, another opportunity by a godly man. 
Joseph had an opportunity to commit sin just like David, and yet his response was to Potiphar's wife, if you remember, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Verse three, David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she went, or she sent, and told David, and said, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, the commander of his army, said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. David gives in to that temptation and he falls. And if you keep on reading, which we're not going to do, but I'm going to briefly explain He falls and he immediately tries to cover up his sin by calling Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, home from the battlefield to get him back to his house to hopefully, so he can have sex with his wife and so that the baby will now look like it's Uriah's and not David's. A good plan, but it doesn't work. It didn't work because Uriah is a man of integrity and of great character. And though he has, Uriah has the right to come home from the king's order, he objects and stays with the army of Israel fighting for the king of Israel, which is David. So David has another idea to cover up his sin, which is to place Uriah in the front of the battle have the troops draw back so that Uriah would be struck down and killed by the Ammonites. And that plan did work. And this is why we say David committed murder. With the power and authority that he had, he was able to have David executed. This is, note, the same David who had an opportunity to take the life of his enemy, Saul, at one point in the cave, if you remember. But he spared even Saul and was kind and gracious to him. But when we're covering up our sin, we go completely in a drastic way and do things we never thought that we would do. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 26, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Kind of an understatement. And you probably know the rest of the story. Nathan comes, the prophet comes to David knowing what David had done and as a godly prophet and as a godly friend, David, he tells him a parable showing David the outrage of what he had just done as the king of Israel. 
lust turning into adultery, manipulation, deceit, covetousness, lying, abuse of power, and eventually murdering Uriah. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 9, Nathan says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. He says to David, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. David, for what you did in secret, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Severe consequences come to David and his house for sure. Beginning right then and there, there is violence in the house of David, going to Absalom, Adonijah, and there's turmoil, chaos from there on out because of the consequences of what David had chosen to do with Bathsheba and Uriah. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sins. You shall not die. David owns it. A tragedy, of course, but he owns and accepts the punishment coming his way. No blame shifting, no excuses, no justification. He doesn't say, Lord, she was a gorgeous woman. You created me with hormones. You created me in such a way to where I'm attracted very strongly to the opposite sex. Go back to Psalm 51, and we'll close there very briefly. After Nathan comes to him, David owns his sin, and he sets forth an example of true confession for all believers. He says there in Psalm 51 and verse 3, For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He says, I know my transgressions. I know the evil that I've just done and chosen to do in your sight. And you would, Lord, be completely just to give me what I deserve. In Leviticus 20 and Leviticus 24, adultery and murder are punishable by death. 
It's really absurd in a sense when you think that Nathan comes and says to David, the Lord has put away your sins. David deserved to die. And here in the Psalm, in Psalm 51, he is agreeing with that judgment. If God were to put David to death because of what David had done, David is saying you would be blameless, completely blameless in that just judgment that should come my way. He's owning it. And David admits his evil, but he appeals to God, not on the basis of God's justice, because we know what would happen. What does he appeal to in verse, in verse 1 of Psalm 51? He appeals on the mercy of God. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of my sin, according to your steadfast love. Or maybe your translation says, loving kindness. Has said, your unfailing love. Deal with me on the basis of what I know about you, about your loyal love to Israel that I've seen time and time and time again. Don't deal with me on the basis of your justice because I know I should be put to death for my sins. The term loving kindness or steadfast love that you have there. It's a term that's used to refer to God's covenantal love that he has with Israel. It's all over the Old Testament. And David knew this about Yahweh very clearly and to appeal to God on that very basis. When we come to God in prayer, we always come to him on the basis of us being found in Christ. It's what we know. It's what he has shown us and proved, proven to us the unfailing love of God in the gospel, namely that he put Christ on the cross in our place. That's the basis in which we come to Christ when we pray to him. And you have to realize David is appealing to God under the Old Testament covenant. How much more for us in the new covenant for us who are on this side of seeing the Messiah revealed to us? How much more confidence should we have in the complete and full forgiveness of God for us who are on this side of the cross with all that has been revealed to us? We know more about God now than David did because we've seen God through in Christ. For us who are in Christ, we don't appeal to God or ask him for his forgiveness as a hope or a begging or a plead. We ask God for continual forgiveness and cleansing, knowing that the answer from him is always a resounding yes. It will never be a no if you're in Christ. It will always be a yes every single time. Yes, I forgive you. Yes, I will cleanse you. Yes, I will put your sins as far as the east is from the west because of my unfailing love for you. And church, the more that we come to know 
of God's unfailing love for us as a people united in Christ, the more of a gospel culture should be experienced among us as God's people. One of understanding, one of sympathy, one of love, that we are sinners just like you. If you come to me with your sin, there's no level of superiority. For us who are in Christ, there should be no hesitancy, reservedness for us to confess our sins to God and to one another. It should be a complete freedom and acceptance because Christ has already paid it all in full. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our short time to understand of your, more of your unfailing love. I pray that we as a church and especially as a leadership just understand the lies and the deceit of sin, that there is so much in the world that is still there to tempt our hearts and our minds, that we are never beyond such strong temptations. I pray that you give us some helpful accountability as a church to be on guard because of what the world offers, because of the power that Satan has for now, and of the remaining sin in our own hearts, the flesh that we still have about us. I pray that we as fathers would be able to start implementing a regular sometimes even daily sense of humility and confession, that we would be an example to our children, to the rest of our members, that when we wrong folks in word or action or in deed, that we would own it. And that you would continually forgive us, cleanse us, Lord, thank you for your steadfast love, for your abundant mercy, for all that we have in the gospel message. Christ, I ask that you would continue to sanctify us by your truth. Make us willing, make us able, and may you be glorified in all that we can do here as a church. We pray in Christ's name, amen.